Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 115. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on May 9th, 2023, in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. Before we get to the history fun, a couple of quick announcements. I was honored to be a guest on John Gabriel's podcast, The King of Stuff, which is, suffice it to say, much bigger than this one, at least so far. John and I spoke for about half an hour about this podcast, including the matter of presentism, Sir Francis Drake, and a bunch of other topics near and dear to our listeners. Please go hunt it down by the usual means, and I'll leave a link in the episode notes on the website for those of you who are too old school to know what the usual means might be. Also, the Washington meetup on April 11th was so much fun, we're going to do one on June 1st in Austin. If you are able to join me at some reasonably convenient spot in Austin for an ice-cold beverage of choice that evening, starting around 6 p.m., please let me know by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or by direct message on Twitter or Facebook. If I can get some sense or estimate of the number of attendees that will help me pick the right spot, I hope you guys can make it. This episode is about the fighting of the Pequot War in New England from 1636 to 1638. It was brutal, by far the most violent and frankly repulsive fighting in early colonial times exceeding in its ugliness anything that had transpired between Europeans and North American Indians since Hernando de Soto and his Entrada fought Chief Tascaloosa at the Battle of Mabila in Alabama in 1540, a topic we covered in the first months of this podcast a couple of years back. This is an example of our commitment to talk about the ugly moments in our history, which, it must be said, is not the same thing as condemnation of our history, or Americans who generally identify with the early settlers rather than indigenous peoples. We shall see how well this goes, and no doubt you will straighten me out if you don't think I struck the right balance. It also should be said that you will get more out of this episode if you listen to the last one, The Geopolitics of New England in the 1630s. At the end of the last episode, we recounted the killing of the English merchant John Oldham and his men at the hands of the Block Island Indians, who were not Pequots. Yet it catalyzed an attack by the Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony on the Pequots that all but wiped them out as a tribe. Why that happened has been controversial among people who have studied the war for almost 400 years. One of the reasons it's been controversial is that until recently, most of the people writing histories of the Pequot War have wanted to justify the Puritan aggression. So they've seized upon little bits of evidence and given them too much weight. The Block Island Indians were not Pequots. They were tributaries of the Eastern Neantics, who in turn were allies of the Narragansetts. As we shall see, the evidence at the time indeed pointed toward the Narragansetts, but Puritan distrust and genuine confusion over inter- and intra-tribal maneuverings shaped their perception of the responsibility for the murder of Oldham and his crew. Shortly after the news of Oldham's killing reached Boston, 
Two Indians he'd employed arrived there bearing a letter from Roger Williams. Williams had received assurances from Canonicus, one of the two principal sachems of the Narragansetts, that they were deeply grieved by Oldham's death and would avenge it. Williams further reported that Mayantanami, the other principal sachem, had already left for Block Island with 17 canoes and 200 fighting men to do precisely that. As an aside, it's not clear from the surviving record whether anybody considered that the six or eight Indians who drowned on the spot when John Gallup rammed Oldham's bark constituted sufficient vengeance. Apparently all concerned, the Bay authorities, maybe Williams, and quite possibly Canonicus and Mayantanami, thought that more reprisals were in order. Anyway, the Bay authorities did not buy Williams' report, not because they didn't believe Williams, but because they couldn't be sure he wasn't being played. And Gallup had brought back a prisoner who under interrogation was telling a very different story. According to Gallup's prisoner, Narragansett sachems one echelon down from Canonicus and Mayantanami with the contrivers of Mr. Oldham's death. Asked about the motive for killing Oldham, the prisoner claimed that the Narragansetts were angry at Oldham because of his involvement in trading with the Pequots on behalf of the Bay Colony. The prisoner also claimed that the two Narragansetts who'd worked for Oldham and carried the letter from Roger Williams were in on the whole dirty business, and that there'd been two English boys on Oldham's boat who had survived and were now in the custody of the Eastern Neantics. All of this was quickly adding up to the possibility of war with the Narragansetts, who, obviously, were also not Pequots. Vane sent Mayantanami a message demanding the return to Boston of the two English boys and the two Indians from Oldham's crew, who now stood accused of betraying their captain. A few days later, the Narragansetts delivered the two boys and some of Oldham's trade goods, but ignored the demand to return the Indians. Now let's go to Alfred Cave's account. Quote, Meanwhile, Roger Williams grew suspicious of Narragansett protestations of innocence. His own inquiries, he informed Sir Henry Vane, confirmed the prisoner's claim that prominent Narragansett leaders had plotted Oldham's murder. He had learned that three of the seven Indians drowned when Gallup interrupted the looting of Oldham's shallop were Narragansett sachems. Another was in the pay of the head sachem of the Eastern Neantics. In response to that report, the Bay Colony informed the Narragansetts that, while it did not hold either Canonicus or Mayantanami responsible, it was convinced that six under-sachems were guilty of Oldham's death. Thus, in addition to returning Oldham's trade goods, the Narragansetts must surrender to the English all those who played a role in the attack on his ship. Although the Bay Colony authorities at the time believed that Oldham was murdered by Narragansetts and their tributaries, later writers, eager to justify the subsequent Puritan assault on the Pequots, insisted that Pequots were somehow implicated. The contemporary chroniclers of the war blame Oldham's death on either the Islanders or the Narragansetts. Gardner reported that the Narragansetts sold goods taken from Oldham's ship to the Dutch traders at Good Hope. 
They also took several gold pieces, which Gardner had seen in Oldham's possession shortly before his death, punched holes in them, and wore them about their necks for jewels. Believing that Narragansett's responsible for the captain's murder, Gardner could not understand why Puritan retribution had fallen on the Pequots, but spared the real culprits. However, the Narragansett Sachem Mayatanami, seeking to deflect English wrath, suggested that Oldham's assailants had taken refuge with the Pequots. Back to me. Cave goes on to detail how subsequent pro-Puritan historians have seized upon Mayatanami's claim that the Pequots had taken in Oldham's killers and amplified it into a plausible justification for war. In fact, there's no evidence that Mayatanami was telling the truth or that the Pequots had anything at all to do with Oldham. But the Bay Colony did not want war with the populace and proximate Narragansetts and might well have persuaded themselves to believe Mayatanami. It certainly would have been the expedient thing to do. It was at roughly the same time, the summer of 1636, that it became clear to the Bay Colony magistrates that the Pequots were not going to comply with their treaty of 1634. They weren't going to send the wampum they had promised, nor were they going to surrender the surviving killers of John Stone and his crew. From the Puritan perspective, allowing for the full measure of ambiguity and slow-moving messages carried on foot and translated imperfectly, it began to look as though the two big tribes of the region, the Pequots and the Narragansetts, were conspiring against them. Was this paranoia or prudence? The lessons of Opakankana's war loomed large. Puritans wrote in letters and journals that they worried that a similar sneak attack was nigh. The magistrates were determined not to make the mistake of the Virginians in missing the warning signs, and the attacks on Stone and Oldham seemed like just such signs. They decided that a preemptive attack for the purpose of resolutely imposing a just sentence on the Indians who had murdered Stone and Oldham would intimidate the tribes into submission. The magistrates consulted the clergy about the doing of justice in this way and were assured that the Lord would smile upon their punitive raid. The magistrates picked our old friend, John Endicott of Salem, to lead a force of 90 men. Endicott, you will recall, was the humorless Puritan, might be redundant, who took time out of his busy schedule to cut down Thomas Morton's Maypole of Marymount. He also backed Roger Williams in his extreme separation until the magistrates had offered him a get-out-of-jail-free card, literally, if he turned on Williams, which he promptly did. Endicott was to proceed to Block Island, where he and his men were to put to death all the native men, and then to the main Pequot village, where they would demand the extradition of the murderers of Stone and other English and a large damages payment in wampum. Now let's go to Francis Bremer's account of the Block Island raid, quote, Endicott's force sailed from Boston on the 24th of August. Struggling waist-deep through a high surf to land on Block Island, they found themselves under attack from about 40 natives. The Indian arrows glanced off the body armor of the English, and only two of the soldiers received wounds. Once the English gained the beach, the natives dispersed and evidently fled the island. 
Endicott's forces spent two days moving through the hilly, overgrown terrain without encountering any hostile forces. They burned 60 native wigwams in the two villages they found and destroyed close to 200 acres of corn. Briefly back to me. Notwithstanding Endicott's failure to put to the sword the men of Block Island, his destructive rampage on the exposed island actually did work. The Block Island Indians subsequently approached Boston for protection to be paid for by an annual payment of wampum. There is, however, no evidence that the Dons of the Mafia learned the protection racket by reading histories of the Pequot War, in case you were thinking that might be the case. Endicott then moved to the Connecticut mainland, heading first for Lyon Gardner's garrison at Fort Saybrook at the mouth of the Connecticut River. About 13 miles west of the main Pequot village as the ordinary crow flies. Gardner was not at all happy to hear of Endicott's mission. Quoting Cave, You come hither to raise these wasps around my ears, he stormed at Endicott, and then you will take wing and flee away. Since his cornfield was located some distance outside the palisade, a Pequot siege, Gardner protested, would mean the loss of his harvest and certain starvation for his men at Saybrook. But Endicott refused to heed his plea that the encounter with the Pequots be postponed. In anger and desperation, Gardner then asked that Endicott's army at least confiscate some of the Pequot harvest, now gathered with them and dry and ready to put into their barns, and use it to provision the fort at Saybrook. Grudgingly, the Bay Colony commanders finally agreed to a plan. Gardner then gave his men their instructions. As soon as they came to the cornfield outside the main Pequot village on the river, eight men were to stand guard while the other four quickly filled their bags with corn and loaded them into the pinnace. Back to me. Endicott's ships were pinned down by four days of contrary winds, but eventually sailed east for the Pequot village at the mouth of the Thames roughly in the vicinity of today's New London. The western Neantics and Pequots there at first thought the English had come to trade and ran along the shore calling out, What cheer, Englishmen, what cheer? Meaning, what cheery news do you bring? When the English did not respond, however, the Indians grew nervous and asked, Are you angry? Will you kill us? And do you come to fight? Neither did the English respond to that fairly reasonable question. That night, the Indians built watchfires along both sides of the river and appeared to gather their forces. Their cries unsettled the English and kept them from sleeping. Tension built. The next morning, at daybreak, a Pequot elder described in one of the narratives as a grave senior, man of good understanding, portly carriage, grave and majestical in his expressions, boarded one of the English ships and asked them to explain themselves. The Puritan officers said that the governors of the bay had sent them to demand the heads of the people who had slain Captain Stone and his company. The Pequots, they said, needed to understand that it was not the English custom to suffer murderers to live. They must either surrender their heads or face war. The Pequot elder turned out to be much better at diplomatic chess than Endicott, who was actually a bit of a blockhead, would have expected him to be. Rather than denying the killing and pointing the finger at some other suspect, 
the Pequot elder, confessed that the Pequots had indeed killed Stone and his men. Now let's go back to Cave's account. Quote, In fact, their grand sachem Sassicus had personally dispatched the captain. As the English listened in horror, the envoy described the death of Stone in vivid detail. As his ship lay at anchor on the Connecticut River, Sessicus had snuck into Stone's cabin, found him in a drunken stupor, and having a little hatchet under his garment, therewith knocked him in the head. As his listeners struggled to retain their composure, the Pequot hastened to explain that the killing of Stone was not really the sort of thing that would justify a war, as it had been intended as an act of just retribution to settle a deep and intolerable grievance. By braining Stone, Sassicus had intended to avenge the death of his own father, who, not long before, had been kidnapped by the Dutch, who had then betrayed all decent custom by putting the former Grand Sachem to death after his kinsman had paid the substantial ransom demanded for his life. With great emotion, the Pequot envoy demanded that the English consider the implications of that outrage. Who, he cried, could blame us for avenging so cruel a murder? As the English started to protest, he added that the Pequots could not possibly have known that Stone and his compatriots were not accessories to the murder of Tadaban, for we distinguish not between the Dutch and the English, but took them to be one nation, and therefore we do not conceive that we wronged you, for they slew our king. And thinking these captains to be of the same nation and people of those that slew him, made us set upon this course of revenge. Back to me. Shrewd as this argument was, that Stone's killing would have been just but for an understandable mistake in nationality, it failed because the English commanders did not actually believe that the Pequots didn't know the difference between English and Dutch. In this narrow respect... I'm actually with the Puritans. I believe that Sassicus knew damn well the difference between English and Dutch. What's not clear from the surviving texts is whether the Pequot elder made the best argument for the killing of Stone, that Stone had kidnapped two Indians and pressed them into service. Anyway, this exchange went on for a bit, and according to the English accounts, which are the only narratives we have, the Pequot elder did a better job of controlling his temper than the Puritan officers. Eventually, he asked that the English hold off attacking for a bit so he could go ashore and consult with his people about the best course of action. Endicott let him go, but disregarded the request to hold off and landed his ninety armed and armored men on the shore. The envoy, seeing this, approached the English in some alarm and asked that they advance no farther. The English did not attack, but advanced to the top of a hill that dominated the local terrain. The envoy then approached again, saying that there was nobody in the area who had the authority to respond to their demand. The English didn't believe this and told the envoy that if he did not cough up somebody in authority immediately, they would march through their country and spoil their corn. The envoy then promised to make another effort to locate Sassicus. More time goes by, the English sweating in their armor. Then the Pequot sent word that they'd found a lesser sachem named Mornmenetek, who would visit them shortly. Then another hour went by. Then another Pequot showed up to tell the English that they were conducting an internal investigation. Words that exhaust even battle-hardened corporate warriors to this day. 
to identify Stone's killers. Even from the distance of almost 400 years, Endicott was, at this point, beginning to look like a fool. Surely even he began to understand that. Anyway, while the English officers, standing with their men on the top of the hill, considered what to do next, they suddenly realized that there were no women or children among the Pequots they could see down below. And then they spotted men digging holes and burying corn and household goods. Endicott construed this as evidence that the Pequots were planning to attack. The record does not indicate whether anybody pointed out to Endicott that sending away the women and children and hiding the valuables would be a completely normal thing to do when confronted with an enemy army that has served an ultimatum that cannot be fulfilled. Endicott struck first. His men marched on the attack, battle flags flying in the style of the Thirty Years' War. The Pequot men scattered, yelling cries that the English took as mocking. The furious English spent the next two days chasing Indians and burning their shelters and crops in destructive futility. Then after a brief return to Saybrook, they went back to Boston. The sole English casualty was one man wounded in the leg. The English claimed that they'd killed and wounded some Indians, but the variability in the numbers suggests some Vietnam-style body counting. John Underhill's report of the mission said that they did not have exact numbers, but certain numbers had been slain and many wounded. Winthrop later wrote that the Narragansetts had reported that 13 Pequots had been killed by English raiders. Lion Gardner, who thought the whole project was stupid wrote that the baymen killed not a man. He had heard from the men he had sent along to collect corn for Saybrook that the only Pequot casualty had been slain by Kutchamakan, a Massachusetts sachem and one of Endicott's Indian guides. And anyway, he was furious at Endicott, who had not honored his deal to help the Saybrook men collect corn. He'd abandoned them, and they'd been attacked by the enraged Pequots, two of them having been wounded. Endicott's raid on the Pequots was genuinely meant as a measured punitive response to the refusal of the Pequots to cough up Stone's killers. Even at that, it was unreasonable, insofar as Stone had richly deserved it for having kidnapped and, if we're being honest, enslaved two Indians. The best reading of it, though, is as we discussed earlier in this episode and last time, that the learned lesson of Opakankana's war in the Chesapeake, only just concluded in 1632, had the effect of turning any small conflict with Indians, such as the occasional killing of a merchant, into a crisis of fundamentally international importance. The Bay Colony's leadership, including John Winthrop, judged that Endicott's raid would deter future aggression from the two most powerful tribes in the region, the Pequots and the Narragansetts. Not only were Winthrop and the Boston magistrates wrong, but other English in the region thought they'd stirred up the Pequots unnecessarily. Lion Gardner, isolated at Fort Saybrook with only a few men and two cannon, knew that the Pequots were going to bring down hell. The governor of Plymouth Colony wrote to Winthrop to express his concern that the Bay had occasioned a war by provoking the Pequots, 
and in the spring of 1637, after the situation had deteriorated considerably, the English settlers along the Connecticut River wrote Boston that their lives had been placed in jeopardy by Endicott's raid. They were right. The Pequot counterattacks began almost as soon as Endicott and his men had left Saybrook. Lion Gardner, short of provisions because Endicott had reneged on his end of their bargain, sent a party of men to Saybrook's cornfield, which was about two miles from the fort. They harvested the corn and built a small stronghouse garrisoned with five men armed with long guns to defend the food. Gardner promised to return the next day with a shallop to pick up the corn and the men and ordered the men to stay with the house until then. More or less as soon as Gardner departed, however, three of the five broke their orders and went duck hunting, presumably because they believed that there were no Pequots nearby. But actually, there were a hundred of them, concealed in tall grass a short distance from the stronghouse. The Indians let the three pass, but jumped up as they returned laden with ducks. One of the English had a sword and was able to hack his way back to the stronghouse but the other two were captured and tortured. The men in the stronghouse could hear their screams of agony, which, no doubt, caused the Pequots, who respected stoicism when under torture, to hate the English even more. When the shallop arrived, the three surviving English fled to it. The Indians moved in and burned the stronghouse and corn and haystacks all the way to the edge of musket range from the fort. They slaughtered a cow outside the palisade, and for some days thereafter, other cattle wandered back to the fort with arrows stuck in their hides. Okay, I'm a bad person because I chuckled at the image of cows wandering around with arrows sticking out of them. I googled around looking for an image of cows shot with arrows and turned up a huge number of pretty recent news stories about 21st century American people shooting cows with arrows. This is apparently a thing people do far more often than one might imagine, a tradition that, quite possibly, began with the Pequots. One can almost picture young Pequot men shooting the cows and laughing about it. Dude, you totally shot it in the butt. Anyway, at about the same time as the Stronghouse raid, Matthew Mitchell, a merchant trader from Weathersfield upriver, had borrowed a shallop from Gardner to go harvest corn on an island in the Connecticut River. Gardner had cautioned Mitchell to bring dogs to scour the meadow for Indians and hiding and to bring enough men to defend against an ambush, but Mitchell did neither. Upon arriving, his four men were almost immediately ambushed by Indians hidden in the grass. They killed three immediately and captured a fourth whom they roasted alive. The Pequot reprisals in the fall of 1636 presaged a far more ominous development from the perspective of the Bay Magistrates. The Pequots approached the Narragansetts for an alliance. The Narragansetts had long been the most powerful tribe in the periphery of the English settlements in today's Massachusetts. Before the smallpox epidemic of 1633 and 34, their population may have exceeded 25,000. We do not know how many may have died that ugly winter, but they could still field a huge number of soldiers, some of whom carried firearms. According to John Barry in his book on Roger Williams, the Indians who did have firearms were far better marksmen, if only because they aimed. 
European tactics at that time involved firing in fusillades, breast high, rather than aiming any individual weapon. A lot had changed in only two years. In 1634, the Pequots had been too proud to negotiate peace directly with the Narragansetts, and instead asked the English to intercede. Now, either out of desperation or rage, probably a bit of both, the Pequots attended a great war council to discuss an alliance with the two top Narragansett sachems, Canonicus and Mayatanami. The two sachems were concerned about the English reaction to John Oldham's killing, and had in any case harbored an abiding dislike of the English since the pilgrims had struck their deal with Massasoit in 1621. Roger Williams, the greatest and only real friend of the Narragansetts among the English, tipped off Governor Vane to the Pequot maneuvering. Vane in return asked Williams to use his utmost and speediest endeavors to prevent the alliance and instead lure the Narragansetts onto the English side. Williams received Vane's message at Providence and he immediately got in his canoe and paddled 30 miles through a cold and stormy Narragansett Bay to the headquarters of Canonicus and Mayantanami, a journey that even Williams, veteran canoeer that he was, described as every minute in hazard of life. Williams was indeed the perfect man for this mission. He knew the local Algonquin better than any other Englishman alive, and he had established credibility with the Narragansett sachems. Williams later wrote that he was able, quote, to break to pieces the Pequot's negotiation and design, and to make, promote, and finish, by many travails and charges, the English League with the Narragansetts and Mohegans against the Pequots. In recognition of William's extraordinary diplomatic achievement, John Winthrop proposed to the governing council of the Bay Colony that Williams be recalled from banishment. The council refused. In fact, Williams was not the only author of the alliance between the Narragansetts and the English. The Pequots had accumulated a long list of Indian enemies during the years they were monopolizing the wampum trade with the Dutch. Kutchamakan, the sachem had served as a guide on Endicott's raid and who may have drawn the only Pequot blood on that benighted expedition, was, according to Alfred Cave, particularly effective in stirring up long-standing Narragansett animosity toward the Pequots. Other Indians piled on. By the end of 1636, the Narragansetts and the Bay had entered into a detailed written treaty interpreted for the Narragansetts by Roger Williams that committed both nations to a defensive and offensive military alliance and set up procedures by which each side would resolve crimes committed by their people on the other. The record does not reveal whether the Narragansetts also licensed their tribal name for use as a brand of beer. Meanwhile, at the same time that the Pequots were failing to recruit the Narragansetts, the Western Neantics, who'd also been there for Endicott's raid, went into the transfer portal. Foreign listeners, you might have to Google that. And the Pequots picked them up. So, by the winter of 1636-37, the English were aligned with the Narragansetts in the eastern Neantics along the Long Island Sound and Sachem Uncas and his Mohegans in central Connecticut versus the Pequots in the western Neantics with a fort at Saybrook and the settlements along the Connecticut River in the heart of enemy territory. 
for roughly four months between late October 1636 and late February 1637, something of a sitzkrieg prevailed in the region. There was manifestly a war on, but there were apparently no attacks on Saybrook nor any new fighting along the Connecticut River. Then on February 22nd, the Pequots attacked at Saybrook. Lion Gardner had led a group of ten men and three dogs, and we can assume these weren't friendly English Springer Spaniels, to a neck of land jutting into the river about a half mile upstream from the palisade. Gardner hoped to retrieve some large logs cut the previous fall and float them downstream to the fort. While they were burning away brush, four Pequot soldiers popped out. Gardner called his men to assemble, but two of them, the delightfully named, if cowardly, Thomas Rumble and Arthur Branch, threw down their guns and ran away. A volley of arrows wounded two others. Now to cave, quote. Gardner ordered his men into a half-moon formation and slowly retreated back to the fort. Thomas Hurlbut, he recalled, was shot almost through the thigh, John Spencer in the back into his kidneys, myself into the thigh, two more shot dead. The Indians continued to attack throughout the retreat, we defending ourselves with our naked swords or else they had taken us all alive. He noted with some pride that the two sore wounded men, by our show of retreat, got home with their guns, but added with disgust that two sound men ran away and left their guns behind them. Once within the palisade, Gardner confronted Rumble and Branch, the cowards that left us, telling them to draw lots to determine which of them should be hanged. Their actions were indefensible, he declared, for the articles of war had been posted in the great hall of the fort, and they therefore were fully aware of the penalty for desertion during battle. But several gentlemen, then at Saybrook, among them the Reverend Francis Higginson and the traitor Matthew Mitchell, urged Gardner to grant a pardon. He agreed reluctantly, recognizing that under the circumstances, Saybrook needed every able-bodied man even the cowardly. Of the wounded, Hurlbut and Gardner both recovered quickly. Hurlbut later claimed that in a subsequent engagement, he had the pleasure of beheading the Indian who shot him through the thigh. The other wounded man shot through the kidneys soon died. A member of Gardner's party who was captured by the Pequots perished under torture, his hands and nose severed from his body. Back to me. Soon after that skirmish, the trader Thomas Stanton sailed downriver bound for Boston, but was becalmed at Saybrook. The Pequot saw a target of opportunity and approached the fort with a large party of soldiers, but they didn't attack. Instead, three Indians cautiously came forward and asked to parley. Stanton spoke Algonquin well enough to translate, and he and Gardner moved out of the fort with six men behind them to secure their retreat if necessary. Gardner's challenge was to handle the encounter without provoking a fight he might lose, and without making concessions that he was not authorized by Boston to make. Now back to Cave, quote, The Pequots asked if the English were at war with the western Neantics across the river declaring that the Western Neantics wanted English friendship and trade. Suspecting a trap, Gardner replied through Stanton that we knew not the Indians one from another and therefore would trade with none. 
Then the Pequots asked, have you fought enough? Gardner's reply to the peace feeler was evasive. We said we knew not yet. The next Pequot inquiry reflected telling uncertainty about the nature of their new enemy. Then they asked if we did use to kill women and children. We said they should see thereafter. So they were silent for a small space. And then they said, we are Pequots and have killed Englishmen and can kill them as mosquitoes. And we will go to Connecticut and kill men, women, and children. And we will take away the horses, cows, and hogs. At this point, young Stanton became agitated and demanded that Gardner shoot that rogue. He had, Stanton cried, killed Englishmen, for he and his fellows were wearing clothes they had stripped from the corpses of their victims. Gardner calmed Stanton, telling him that they would not kill Indians during a parley, but would take their revenge at an appropriate time. He told Stanton to challenge the Pequots to a battle on the grounds near Saybrook. Stanton, on Gardner's prompting, warned the Pequots that English women and livestock would be of no use to them, for English women are lazy and can't do their work. Horses and cows were spoil your cornfields, and the hogs the clam banks, and so undo them. Back to me. Then Gardner waved his hat, a prearranged signal for the fort to discharge its two cannon. The Pequots disappeared. Let's pause for a moment and try to imagine the tension in this encounter. The two sides are negotiating, using the idiom of force and bluff. Under what must have been excruciating stress, each trying to figure out the other's war aims and the level of violence they would deploy to achieve those aims. Gardner, who very much wished the war had not started, played his hand as well as any soldier diplomat might have, explaining that everything the Pequots might plunder would be of no value to them, including their lazy English women. Okay, so I know I've promised no throat-clearing disclaimers, but in case there are any doubts, Puritan women were not lazy in the least. They worked all day managing the huge number of children they bore on the edge of the wilderness, and their idea of fun was sitting around in the evening debating subtle nuances in Calvinist theology. Anyway, at the same time, the Pequot emissaries were trying to figure out how vicious the English would be if the fighting got intense. They would find out, to their everlasting sorrow, soon enough. And that's the story of the next episode. This is a great place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. I love getting emails from you guys. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. You can buy the books I mentioned through the links in the episode notes on the website and follow me on Twitter to stay up to date and sample my musings on mostly history-related topics. Until next time.